What are the elements of the music experience that I so desperately love? And what are the elements of the theatre experience that I so desperately love? And how do we kind of smush it all together? All of a sudden, I just had this beautiful community of Asian performers and directors and, and um, producers who were all just doing such incredible stuff. And we were like, let's do all these things, let's do all these things together because we can and it's fun. exhausting and I want to now as a leader be someone that can run around and just offer and offer and offer and offer as opposed to ask. Welcome to the Theatre Art Life podcast and hello. We're putting the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the globe, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Anna Robb. And my name is Anna Aguilera. On this episode, we are talking to Dave Sleswick about theatre and music production in Australia and Asia. Dave Sleswick is a graduate from the Queensland University of Technology with a Bachelor of Arts, Creative Industries, Drama. He's an independent producer for Motherboard Productions, is a well-known producer in the Australian arts market. More recently, Dave is using his skills in the music industry and has become the owner and creative director of the Tivoli Theatre, an iconic art deco music venue and contemporary art space situated in the heart of Brisbane. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Wonderful to have a, a fellow Aussie on the podcast. I think it's been a while. I, when did we have our last one, Anna? Did we have an Australian on the, the podcast yet? Oh, yeah. We have Joseph and Jess and I can't remember. But we had a bunch at the beginning. But a lot of people that are not actually currently living in Australia, I think, a lot of Australians that have actually moved and relocated overseas like myself. So, Dave, tell us a little bit about um, your career in the arts in Australia and a little bit about the art scene uh, over there uh, for our international audience. Just in relation to kind of my trajectory, I started going through university as a as a young human and um, all of my interest was pretty much, you know, based around trying to be an actor, <laughs> as I think lots of people start going to kind of drama school is like trying to, you know, um, find your people and find your community. And I definitely did that through my through my degree at, in drama school. But a lot of things kind of emerged out of that, which was, you know, understanding that, you know, there were lots of people that were going to go in lots of different directions from there and understanding that, you know, I think that drama was a kind of starting point for lots of people's exploration of their own creativity. I have a lot of friends, actually, a lot of my very, very good friends that I hold in my inner circle right now are ones that I made through university, but they're all off now doing really exceptional creative things, but lots of lots of people working in kind of entrepreneurship and, and the creative industries. But I, my personal journey ended up taking me from wanting to be an actor into wanting to kind of be a part of making things happen generally. <laughs> so I moved from being an actor into a producer and I saw a lot of my artist friends at the time having all of these really just brilliant creative ideas but not really the kind of, not really the ability to make them happen. <laughs> so my my background kind of, I had a lot of business 
influence through my family and I ended up kind of getting this entrepreneurial mindset. So I took on the kind of role of, yeah, doing a lot of producing for my friends' creative projects, which led me to start my own independent producing company called Motherboard Productions. So yeah, I actually spent a fair bit of time whilst exploring my own creativity as a as a performer, I'm moving around the uh, around the world and studying and training and yeah, and it was when I was living in New York actually that I decided that I was actually going to pick up all of my attention and put it into producing and making um, other people's creative ideas happen. So yeah, I started Motherboard Productions. I think it was in 2010, and as part of that, I um, had a, a network of people around me that were all kind of trying to make theatrical dance pieces happen. And so yeah, I started um, doing the management of those of those artists and touring and and all the stuff that comes with producing. So that was really my starting point, and. It was very interesting for me kind of moving into that more producing managerial space. Uh, One of my very, very close friends at the time was working with artists in South Korea. And so I ended up becoming really kind of connected with a whole world of of um, artists who are working transculturally and across different cultures and in um, international collaboration. And that became a really huge part of my of my life and still very much is a huge part of my life. And so I I deviated into the world of producing not only in Australia but also internationally and and ended up becoming a part of a lot of really incredible networking groups. And a part of that was was actually becoming um, one of the one of five Australian producers that became part of the cohort of the Asia Producers Platform, which was a group of people from all around um, Asia and um, Australia and New Zealand. So, yeah, there was lots of really dynamic kind of conversations that happened there between producers from all around that region. Yeah, so I kind of continued my continued my world as an independent producer, but through that and through all of those networks, ended up getting kind of poached by a bunch of different venues and festivals, and um, you know everyone's kind of looking for people to come and help, you know, make their ideas happen. And I I ended up in a role with the Brisbane Powerhouse as well as their producer for the for contemporary performance, which led me into kind of dance, theatre, music management. And following that, I ended up being the program producer for the Australian Performing Arts Market, which was our Australia's kind of big every biannual international arts conference and and marketplace. And so for me, I've always really wanted to position myself as someone that's very much local, Australian, Brisbane, with a really international outlook. So yeah, I've kind of did did a number of years with the with the arts market, but through my university days, I actually I funded my way, I funded my youthful lifestyle, <laughs> um, bartending at a at a music venue called the Tivoli Theatre, and so I ended up getting a job there when I was twenty years old, slinging beers over the bar and kind of funding my funding my my own arts projects that way. <laughs> And I, whenever I was in Brisbane, I was always at the Tivoli working the bar and being a part of kind of music, of massive, massive music lover and been in and out of gigs my whole life. And so in 2016, the Tivoli actually ended up going up for sale and 
the Tivoli, for those of you that don't know it, is a it's a very very iconic fifteen hundred capacity music venue in in Brisbane's Fortitude Valley, um, and it's been around as an active music space since nineteen eighty eight. And so it was kind of ear, the venue was earmarked to be you know pretty much developed and destroyed um there was a lot of kind of attention on the building at the time for um you know brisbane's got a really amazing history of knocking down um really critical important art spaces and places of cultural significance and everyone was just kind of like oh if the tivoli goes then we've kind of got we've kind of got nothing and so that place for me was really my home um i grew up there and it was a little bit like a kind of over my dead body kind of thing that anything was going to happen to it. But also I have a really close relationship with my brother as well. And my brother has a long history in working in property. And he was the one that said to me, should we just go in and try and get it? (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's going to be impossible because that's a really big financial play. And I'm not used to, to being in that space. And he's like, nah, let's just do it. Let's go and give it a crack. Um, and so next minute we now own and run the Tivoli Theatre, which is, um, uh, when I look back, it's still a kind of thing that's beyond my belief that's actually happened. So I've been doing that and running that since 2016, and along with that has been this um, uh, incredible journey of leadership and social responsibility and, what's the word, custodianship um, of this place of cultural significance. Now, yes, I've been doing that since since 2016 and here we are. <laughs> that's my life's journey <laughs> in, a, in a wrap. I think that's really interesting um, that you took such a leap in terms of taking on the Tivoli Theatre and, and what was the reaction for the people around you when you took it on? Was there scepticism and, and, and how's it been going since you did take it over? There was nothing but positive 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 reinforcement joy support the community the community has been and is still incredible in here in brisbane and um i guess one of the things that was perplexing was that no one so steve my brother came from the property world the property and business world and i came from the theater world and so there was actually no one from the music industry um, really knew who we were. So there were lots of people that were like, who are these fellas and what do they think they're doing? <laughs> I think it was a bit refreshing for a lot of people because the music industry has, a, has and I think maybe it's growing out of a very particular style of working, which wasn't really synonymous with how I grew up in the arts world which was one that was not solely kind of commercially cutthroat. It was more about community and, and, um, and I think that my approach through my lens and Steve's approach through his commercial property lens, but also not having come at all from either the arts or the music industry, it's, it's given us both a really independent outlook. Um, we haven't been sucked into growing up into the way that everyone else has done things. Uh, we've kind of forged our own opinions and our own style and our own approach about how we want to run our space. 
which doesn't necessarily have to be the same that it, same way that everyone else runs their spaces. We operate the Tivoli Theatre completely independently of government funding. It is a commercial venture, but we operate it commercially, but through the lens of placemaking, through the lens of the cultural building cultural capacity. Uh, we run it through the lens of inclusive inclusion and diversity. And we run it through the lens of diversity of genre as well. Like I've spent a fair bit of time trying to see how the lessons learned I've learned from the theatre industry and the arts industry can can morph its way into the music space and how I can take all the lessons from the really dynamic world of the music industry and morph it back into the arts space a little bit. And I think it's it's a little it would be a little bit naive to say that the music and the arts industry are the same because they just operate on a different wavelength. But I think something for me that's super interesting is seeing how we can slowly bring those things together and take the best bits out of both worlds and get rid of all the garbage out of both worlds. <laughs> Um, so that's what I'm kind of trying to do with the space. And it's, um, you know, it's definitely no, I don't look at it, I don't look at my role as a venue owner and business owner with any sense of, it's a huge responsibility. And I, I place a huge amount of care in the privilege of having space in this day and age when lots of people don't have space. And so I think a lot about how we use having space and and how how we use it and what that actually means in a kind of broader social context. I think it's really interesting how you brought from the theatre and merged to the music. And I don't know if you want to expand on the difference between producing theatre and producing music, how you transition to that. And, I mean, this might be a second question altogether, but how do you manage to make a profit company out of uh, something that's artistic and social that is kind of a complicated venture and respecting all your ideals that I see are very clear, like ethics and justice and land acknowledgement and all that? I mean, I'm still learning and it's always changing, so I kind of don't feel like I've actually got any real answers one of the things for me I recall is I remember being on tour with the theater company I was in the US actually and I was on tour with the theater company I remember I'd just gotten out of a music a music concert um, I think I was in I was in Louisville Kentucky and I just gotten out of a music concert and I was like that I was just so blown away by that music experience And I had the best, the best, best time. And I walked out and I was, and I was working on a theater production at the time. And I was like, I wonder why I so often leave from a music experience and feel this joy, elation, uh, high energy. I feel a sense of connectedness to other humans. I wonder why I feel that way more often than I do walking out of a theater to see a theater show. Um, it's not that I don't feel that walking out of a theater, but I'm just like, what are the elements of what are the elements of the music experience that I so desperately love? And what are the elements of the theater experience that I so desperately love? And how do we 
how do you kind of smush it all together? There's some things for me about the theatrical experience that I find to be a little bit against the nature of why theater exists <laughs> a little bit. And and I'm still, I still try and process this a lot, but, you know, just the idea of um, being in a seat separated from the, the performance or sometimes feeling like you're not a part of it, you're not actually a part of the experience. You're just there being witness to it. And more often than not in the music space, you kind of feel like you're just in it. Like you're involved in it, you're energetically there. But sometimes in a theatre experience I go, oh, well, you're just kind of, you're just sitting here witnessing something, right? You're not being like sucked into it. And, yeah, and I remember whilst I was in the US I wrote this little note to myself about going, why, why, how do I in my world bring the worlds together more? And this was like 2009, (laughs) This was ages ago when I was a baby, but it was like, I just remember going, I think my work is going to involve, my long-term work in the arts is going to involve something based around the idea of togetherness and going, how do we create experiences more often than, more often where we are bringing people to actually together and we're bringing people together for me in real time and real space not bringing people together necessarily through digital form or blah 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 but it's the sharing of time in space um in real time and i was like that's kind of my that's my shtick my shtick is going to be providing opportunities where we can connect genuine genuinely in real time and real space and it's pretty tricky (laughs) it's pretty tricky and it's pretty tricky to create the platform where you do that but it's good, <laughs> you know, it's done well. <laughs> and so that the gathering of people in real time and real space is actually achieving the things that we want to achieve, which is joy and community and connectedness and knowing that you're not alone. And And I do think that sometimes when I think about those really big ideals, I go, sometimes the theatre space is not the right space for that uh, is, or, or doesn't allow for that. And sometimes the music space does allow for that. So now I've got a venue. <laughs> Uh, now I've got a venue and I'm trying to have those big ideals come to life through a space that we kind of govern. And sometimes it's successful, sometimes it's not. But we, that's the, I think that's the kind of driver for me. With your um, work in Australia and then also in Asia, and I guess you, you sound like you've actually been around the world with all of that um, experience as well. What's the relationship within the arts community in Australia and and Asia, and and how how have they worked together, and and what's is has that created that community and sense of pride in Australia as you've worked internationally with Asia, and and how does how do you fit into say the the Korean culture, bringing your Australian experience there? My whole interaction with Asia, and particularly my my heart center country was working with artists in south korea um it was all very personal like it didn't it wasn't something i went out to seek it was all a kind of growth of personal relationships primarily with two three or four of my kind of core collaborators jeremy nathan and yong he it really i was dragged into the world of of the of the international collaborations and 
I became really fascinated with how we learn more about ourselves and our arts practice and our industry through looking at it at a, uh, in an international lens. And I was, pr- it's pretty, for me, it became pretty obvious how ethnocentric the Australian art scene was and how uh, it was very much, it was a very, very much a white lens that we were looking at everything through and a very colonial lens. And I think there's been a lot of work done in Australia in the in the kind of Indigenous space and the Indigenous arts practice being kind of elevated. I just became ultimately intrigued about understanding more about why, you know, why we were, you know, just why the kind of connection across the borders was so so hard and not not very visible yeah I don't know it's kind of a tricky thing because it's not like I ever feel like I set out to have that as part of my life it's just it was just an organic growth of friendships and from kind of one thing led to the next and the more that I the more time I spent overseas um, and the more time I spent in Korea just the more friends I made and the more friends I made the more opportunities came up and you know, those opportunities were all based around theatre and dance initially. And then all of a sudden, I just had this beautiful community of Asian performers and directors and, and um, producers who were all just doing such incredible stuff. And we were like, let's do all these things. Let's do all these things together because we can and it's fun. Uh, we could <laughs> and it's fun. <laughs> now that it's not a huge part of my day to day in the last kind of 18 months with COVID, I'm really, I really feel it. I really feel that disconnect and it's quite it's quite sad. I've been trying to think about the ways in which we continue international collaboration in the land of COVID. I'm plotting out a few bits and bobs, but it's still it's really tricky. And it's if I feel a loss, I feel a cultural loss really of not having that that engagement as part of my ongoing life. When it comes to actually producing in the different countries, do you see any similitudes and differences or is there anything in particular that you like better of either doing it in one country or another or in this international collaboration that it's more like a free-for-all situation? I don't know. To be honest, um, it's hard everywhere. Doing anything creatively is hard. Is It feels to me really, really challenging everywhere. And I think the way that politically the arts are treated across the world is very similar there's some obviously lots that are lots of countries that are more kind of privileged in the way that their political structure values the arts but it's all still you know artists some art, artists are a minority um artists uh, and then there's different minorities within the groups of artists as well but you know artists are essentially you know it's often we're, we're having this conversation in Australia at the moment about whether art is considered essential work <laughs> and it's probably a similar conversation everywhere. But I would say, I would say I've learnt that amongst all of the kind of challenges we face here politically with arts and losing money and de- the devaluing and the, de- the, the dehumanising of the cultural industries, in particular the arts, 
we're often in a better spot than lots of other places. We're, we're often, I, I find when I look into other cultures that it's even worse elsewhere. So I try to be grateful for what I've got and where I am at. But at the same time, we've got to keep, you've got to keep pushing for change. But also the political system in Korea, for example, is like not long ago they had, when they were in their old government, they had a big blacklist uh, and all the artists were black. They had all of the people that were making art and developing theatre and music. There were people that were on a giant blacklist that essentially couldn't be get any government support, any funding, and it was like, wow, this is really, really intense. And it's 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 interesting how political the arts space is in so many cultures. It's interesting that you talk about how arts globally isn't viewed. You know, is it an essential service or not? I was, uh, you know, my kids just finished school in the last month, and uh, I was going through. You come home and they've got this stack of like years worth of work, and. Um, you know, Mandarin classes and maths and all of that sort of stuff. And I find myself the only thing that I keep of all of their work is anything they've done artistically. And I think that's quite funny because, like, it's the expression of who they are. The rest of the learnings is not I'm not going to keep their maths book for the next 10 years, but I am going to keep their drawing that they express themselves. So I, I just I find that there's, there's so much necessity for art in this world that, uh, uh, and what we remember and what touches us and what we keep close to us is really the arts, which is which is quite interesting. But I wanted to comment, um, I, my experience, and I, I wanted to do if you agreed, a lot of the people that I see who are um, coming out of Australia and working internationally have a very vested interest in understanding the other cultures and maybe with, uh, the Australian art scene is ethnocentric within Australia, but generally Australians are, are very open to, well, they love to travel, first of all, and they also love to learn and, and experience different cultures. And especially in the artistic space, they're very collaborative, in my experience, from what I've seen. What do you think is it about um, Australians, particularly not to sort of typecast, but is what is it, what's that kind of bread mentality of, of being willing to travel and experience and be open to other cultures? And do you agree? I agree for sure. I think, I mean, I'll just speak on my experience as well and maybe that resonates. I think one of the things that makes me and I know a lot of my kind of um, artistic counterparts really hungry for exploration, cultural exploration, is that we, I think in Australia, we've had such a long damaging history of denying our first, our our First Nations peoples and not our First Nations peoples, the First Nations peoples of of Australia. And I, there's still a lot of damage that has been, that, that has, there's still a lot of damage that, that's taken place. And I think it's got a lot to do with um, basically the erasure of history and the denial of history and the fact that we as a as a country i don't think have fully come to terms with come to terms with and and really acknowledged our past and i think there's lots and lots of things that are happening in the right direction which is really great but i guess in saying that a lot of white australians um i know don't have a really deep sense of kind of cultural practice 
artistic history, um, anything that kind of roots them. And this is, I guess, my experience. Um, I've got to be very careful not talking too generally and going, my experience is everyone's. <laughs> but my experience is that I, I guess I've always been drawn to cultures that draw on their own cultural history for their arts practice and seeing the kind of depth and the history and the kind of lineage of of arts practice is I just find fascinating and to that end I kind of I don't have a really kind of strong sense of my own Australian identity as a human and I think that's because we don't we don't as a as a relatively young white culture, have that um, that groundedness. I think that we could potentially it could potentially deepen for us the more we are able to kind of spend time acknowledging the land that we're on and the histories that we stand upon. So yeah, I guess that's I guess that's a little bit for me why I'm constantly drawn to arts practice and people and cultures that are not my own. On the website for Open Season, which is one of your projects, you actually do a land acknowledgement. Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I mean, in Australia, it's like, I mean, it's becoming a very common practice to be publicly where you are working is to be acknowledging the, um, the traditional land that you're working on and that you're living on. And it's a really, I find it to be a really fantastic practice that is becoming just very very widespread i live and work on turrible and yagara land in brisbane which is um they're the local aboriginal people that own this land that we're on and so it's really important that wherever we go and in the process of like doing all the things that i was just talking about before in terms of deepening our connection to history and deepening our connection to our our original cultures That that's yeah that's a, it's a common practice the thing that is becoming a little bit frustrating as well is that it's also becoming quite a political thing to do is that every person that gets up and does a political speech or does a is saying oh we acknowledge the land we acknowledge the land and i i really i'm really hoping that this practice of acknowledgement doesn't become just a thing that you do to tick the box that becomes a thing that you do to actually take time to stop and think about where we are where we are <laughs> and the histories that we stand upon rather than like I'm here and I'm a I'm I work in politics and my speech maker made me say these things so that I do all the right things we've got to get out of that mentality of going oh we're just we're just rolling through the punches here to to do what we're politically correctly supposed to do so on the other side of that is you know a real a real desire to through the acknowledgement of the land is acknowledging that we're all trying to change um, and that we're all trying to spend energy to reconcile and to hand back over sovereignty to our First Nations people. Uh, yeah, I find that really interesting and I, and I also resonate with your comment about, you know, perhaps white Australia having a lack of depth there, um, so being interested in other cultures. I think that's really interesting. I, I also, and I wanted to ask, maybe you do know or you don't know, but I think a lot of the uh, starting to acknowledge the history and create that depth within multicultural Australia, because there's a lot of cultures, not only uh, just white as well now, to inc an increase in the education of 
um, Indigenous history as part of our history. Is that shifted? I mean, I know when I went to school in Australia, we were taught about the dream time and that's I find it funny because my memory of it was just like, here's this separate thing that we talk about, but it didn't, it wasn't necessarily as part of our own individual history and I, I think that was probably an ignorant mistake back then. Has it shifted now? I don't really know, to be honest. In terms of the education system, I don't really know what it looks like to sit in a classroom in grade in grade two or three or four, whatever it is, and be taught about where you come from. I'd love to know. I'd love to know where the education system is sitting at. I think it's d- deepened a little bit more, but from my experience, I remember, you know, having a very, very broad overview kind of this is um, this is Aboriginal culture. These are the, all the beautiful stories, and um, but the reality was, the reality is um, that it was a, it's a very different past, and I don't I don't know how that's acknowledged for young people these days. Actually, uh, one can only hope that it's a little bit deeper. Mm, absolutely. So in your in your work now in, in your day to day work, I guess that that you've got a quite a cacophony of things you've got to. You're managing oh, the business, you're dealing with the <laughs> social issues, you want to acknowledge Australian culture and deepening that history but then bringing your influences from overseas. And What drives you to decide on what and how you take on in terms of projects? How, what inspires you? What, 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 do you? what do you look for as you take on new projects? That might be a difficult question to ask. It is a really difficult question and unfortunately there's a few things that there's a few things that I've come to terms with is that I now run I now run and take full have full financial responsibility for a very large organization and there are just some critical things that are involved which is making sure you make enough money and making sure that you make enough money so that you can continue can continue to do your work because if you don't have the resources, you can't do the work. And is the balance of going, what do we do commercially? And the word commercial sounds like lots of people get all icky about it, but I embrace it entirely. I'm like, let's get commercial about this. Let's get super commercial. And commercial doesn't need need to mean selling out or or doing things against a kind of greater moral standpoint or but just going, we need to make the bottom line work. And we need to figure out how to do that so that our work doesn't stop dead in its tracks and that we don't have to run around groveling for um, people to give us permission to do our work. <laughs> That's the, that was one of the things that I found very challenging in my independent producing world is that I just had to do so much asking, asking for permission, asking for someone to give us or the companies that I work with a slot in their program asking for money to do things, asking for space to rehearse in. And it's, I mean, that's all fine and part and parcel of it, but it's actually quite a little bit, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I want to now as a leader be someone that can run around and just offer and offer and offer and offer as opposed to ask. Um, (laughs) Go, you come here and do this thing in our space because we have space and you're great. Let's do it. And just flip the flip the tables around. I, I digress. So, um, the co- like the commercial side of things, I make a lot of decisions. I do make a lot of decisions on what's going to basically work. And if it's going to work financially, 
then my if it's not going to work financially i'm going to have a i'm going to have issues doing projects for me a huge um, lens in which i look at at projects through is it does it fit within um, the stuff that i like i want to like what i do i want to come and watch shows that are in my own venue that i really love and enjoy um, i want to see my friends and i want to see my colleagues and i want to see I want to see those people on stage and I want to see them succeed. So for me, it's not just going, oh, I'm going to run around pick and choosing my friends to do things, but it's about the creation of community as well and going, oh, I, I work with those people and I work with those people and th- these people I feel very attuned with um, artistically um, or from a business point of view and go, I'm going to work with them, I'm going to work with them. And for me, it's about finding all of the your tribe and making sure you're all kind of just gathering each other around to kind of make success. So my 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 programming choices are based around finances, 100%. I'm not going to shy away from that. <laughs> um, and they're based around community. Who are the people that I want to spend all my days with? Who are the people that I want to open the door to my venue and see rehearsing in there? Do I connect with them? And... I think the other lens that I like to look through is what kind of impact are these projects going to have short-term and long-term? And by impact, I mean cultural impact, social impact, community impact, financial impact, <laughs> what kind of, what kind of um, sits on the other side of the projects. So, yeah, they're my three main lenses. And I don't think I've actually super articulated that before. But it is, yeah, financial, community, and impact. And I think one of the things that's really exciting about being in my position is that I get to curate my time, like who I spend my life with. Uh, We get to choose. We get to choose. We don't have to be stuck in an office with colleagues that we don't get to choose who they are and you kind of, you blend into this, system that you're put into but in this position for me and i'm so grateful for it i'm I'm beyond grateful but every every person that i look around every day i get to kind of i get to choose to have those people in my life and i and and every person that i actually have are the best they're just such such it's such great time spent it's just so beautiful (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm also a massive like sap, but it's true though. Like, and why should I don't know why we should um, steer away from talking in emotional or like terms like that. Like, it's true. It's why we're it's why we're in the arts for God's sake. <laughs> for sure, and and definitely in the way that our podcast has kind of evolved is. Anna and I discussed, you know, yeah, we talk about what people do and where they do it and how to, and now we, we want to dig more into those questions about culture and purpose and, and those sort of things. So we appreciate your insight and I, and I love those um, pillars of your focuses for your business because I think, you know, like financial stability is is key to producing and, 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 uh, and but then having that cult- culture and community focus and impact is something that's so important for an arts professional. So I, I appreciate your insights. Well, I don't know if you want to get into this, but talking about the Princess Theatre, and I feel like that brings together everything that you've just mentioned because it's a historical venue and it's um, 
tied to culture and renovation and creating community, investing in your own culture and all those things. So I don't know how you see it. Yeah, um, I, part of this, the part of the puzzle, I guess, that we haven't mentioned is we're in the process of opening up another venue. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> it's... um. Yeah, so the Tivoli is a fifteen hundred capacity standing music space, and then it's a it's also a um, heritage listed architect um, heritage listed place of cultural significance in Brisbane. Um, at the beginning of last year, prior to uh, prior to COVID, there's another another venue in Brisbane came up uh, on the market, which was actually it's called the Princess Theatre. It's in a place called Wool and Gabba and uh, which is an inner city suburb just south of the river and the princess theater is queensland's oldest standing theater and it's also one of the oldest standing theaters in the country and um it went up for sale and we went and looked at it and a lot of work required and essentially it's a kind of a big long story but in december last year we signed a contract to do it during this period of time of covid and everything shutting down and like we, me and my two business partners, Steve and Simon, we, I recall us sitting around in a circle in October and asking ourselves whether we were actually going to do this project. And it's a kind of, it's another once in a lifetime opportunity that came our way. And we just said yes. And so we've taken on the renovation, the relaunch and the, um, the kind of long-term ownership and governance of another architectural, architecturally significant building in Brisbane. <laughs> so wish us luck. Um, no, but it's uh, it's due to open in about six weeks. We I've never been busier in my entire life. <laughs> I've never been busier or in such a weird, hectic, tumultuous exciting time in my life than I am right now at the point of having this conversation so it's kind of timely I guess yeah it's kind of it feels to me like I ask myself this question every day that it's either the stupidest stupidest thing we've ever done or kind of the smartest riskiest most like courageous thing we've ever done and I'm trying to look at it as though we're being really courageous and but um, sometimes you wake up and you're like, what have we done? What have we done? <laughs> but I'm so confident. I actually, I know that that's just my doubt. That's my own personal sabotage talking. And we've structured the whole thing impeccably. It's, um, we're, not, we're not the ones to take um, uncalculated risk. It's all very strategic and it will definitely work. It's just um, what a time. What a time to be alive. Let's open a new theatre mid-pandemic. Yeah, that's courage all, all the way. I'm definitely not feeling self-congratulatory at the moment about it. It's more like I'm, my mindset when I woke up this morning was definitely in the what have we done space. And I, I really want to be authentic about that as well. Like I don't want to hide the fear. <laughs> Let's go, yeah, we've got this, we've got this, we'll be right. Well, I think in any audacious venture that you'd be wrong if you were completely fearless, right? And and that's when you're on the growing edge when you're when you've got that uncertainty and um, boldness is is the way to achieve something amazing. So uh, you know, hats off to you for that. You know, to finish off, what an amazing uh, sort of career and path that you've had. 
what what are you at the core of what you do what do you like about your job I think it goes back to what I said before about being able to curate your life I feel like the position that I'm in has enabled me to get a sense of agency over my life and my create my creative life and being able to look around to be able to look around kind of day in day out and get to see the incredible humans that you get to spend your time with that's the, that's actually the best thing like i and if it all fell apart whatever like i'd still get to turn around and those people will all still be there and you know very very dear friends i get to like not only kind of make work and run a business with these people but i spend all my social time with with them as well like all of our it's such an amazing team of like casual staff as well that we you know i see on the weekend and we hang out and such an amazing team of artists and so i think i think that's really it it's a i think at the moment it's hard to see through all of the the busyness and the madness but um at the end of the day it's really about how you get to spend your time and what you spend your time doing and ha- and knowing that it's actually kind of sitting back and knowing that it actually really kind of means something. That's I think that's what I enjoy the most about it. And if you could change something, what would you change? I think I would change how much you have to fight, <laughs> politically fight. If I think I would, if I could change something about the the my the world in which i operate in it would be having to fight less to be seen and heard in the kind of greater world um and to have a lot more people kind of um understand that you know that arts and culture is not it's essential yo it's like <laughs> it's it's bloody essential like we would be dead people we would be soulless you know robot humans if there was no arts and and I don't know how to communicate that any further to to the higher powers and and so if, yeah that's what I'd change it I, I would I would have more equality in industry equality that's an awesome answer and I also appreciate the curating of your own life I think that is the ultimate goal for most artists to have that that freedom right so Thank you, Dave, for your time today. It's been absolutely a pleasure to get to know you and your career and your wonderful work um, over there in Australia, and uh, we really appreciate uh, your time with us. Thanks. I've really enjoyed it. It's been um, <laughs> nice to just take a moment out of the crazy to to reflect, so thanks for the for the invitation. It's been awesome. We would love to hear from you, our listeners, on who you would like us to feature on this podcast or what topics fascinate you. There is a link in our podcast description where you can send us your requests and guest nominations. Theatre Art Life provides regular monthly webinars and podcast episodes for free. If you have the means, donations can be made via a link in the podcast notes. We would be thankful for any support you can give us. You can learn more about Theatre Art Life, the global media site for entertainment, at www.theatreartlife.com. And you can follow us on all social media platforms. We want to thank David Sire for composing the music for our podcast. We are your hosts, Anna and Anna, and this is the Theatre at Life podcast.